0: Welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. As a community of faith, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus. Good. Well, we're in Acts chapter 17, and we are on the second missionary journey with the Apostle Paul, Silas, Timothy, uh, kind of the mission's dream team, as we call it. Luke was with them for a while, the writer of the book. Um, but now, as we continue on through... Uh, the story here and through at the book of Acts, um, we've seen them go on this journey from Lystra. We've seen them go to Philippi. Remember what happened there in Philippi? A lot happened there. They went to Thessalonica. Last week we talked about Thessalonica, and then of course they came to Berea, which was such an inspiring story of the church or the, the people there in Berea who studied the word. They uh, followed um, what Paul had said to them, and then they went to the scriptures and they verified it for themselves. And then because of that verification, uh, the Lord then revealed to them uh, the truth about Him and and. Berea was just so interesting to me because unlike some of the other cities, Paul didn't do any miracles here that we know of. I don't know if you noticed that at all. A lot of places, you know, Paul maybe healed somebody or or something like that happened, something supernatural. But in Berea, all that we see is that the word of God was preached. People examined the word and they came to be believers in Jesus Christ. And that's the same that happens today. If somebody would truly turn to the word with an open heart, and study the evidence for themselves, and look at who Jesus is. As we talk about this video here, how there's evidence all around us for Jesus, they would become believers. I truly believe that if they would look at it with an open heart, and that's what's so great. The word stands on its own, right? You don't have to have uh, all sorts of other things happening. We don't have to have miracles or some other uh, interesting things that happen. We have the Word of God, and it can do a work with the power of the Holy Spirit, and. Um, and yet, as we see, and this is what's interesting, as we see, Berea was a great place and a lot of good things happened there, but as sort of was the pattern, what happened is that the Jews in Thessalonica, who were not happy about, remember the lewd fellows of a baser sort, remember those guys? Uh, they heard what was happening in Berea, and so they actually sent people to uh, to Berea from Thessalonica in order to cause problems uh, for Paul, and they caused it so much Trouble that he needed to leave Berea for his own safety. Look at verse number 13 of Acts 17. It says, But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came through there also and stirred up the people. That's a very common thread that we see all throughout the book of Acts. Man, those people were easily stirred up, weren't they? I don't know if they were just bored, you know, or, or they just needed something to do, but they could so easily be stirred up. Verse 14, And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea, Uh, And that's just meaning that he went to travel by sea, leaving by sea, and Silas and Timotheus abode there still, verse 15. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they Departed. Well, because of this persecution, Paul then is on the move again. And this time he's on the move and he leaves Silas and he leaves Timothy in Berea. We don't know why. He just left them there for whatever reason. And uh, maybe they were still able to minister without too much issue. Maybe Paul was the source of all of the, the consternation and he was the one that they were targeting. But Paul, uh, Silas and Timothy stay behind and Paul is taken from a few by a few of the believers in Berea and he goes and he leaves to make the 300 kilometer journey to Athens. Now I have a map here for, so we kind of see as we're learning about the ancient world and knowing where they were and how they're traveling and so we see up there Thessalonica is the dot to the right and then Berea is where the flag is right there and he would have traveled down to the sea and more than likely would have taken a boat that would have gone down the coast kind of snaked its way through and would have landed finally in Athens on foot it's about a 300 kilometer journey It would have taken several days of course by boat uh, to accomplish that but we see him arriving in Athens And then it says in verse number 15 that uh, those that brought him to Athens and then they received a commandment from Paul that Silas and Timothy should come immediately or come as quickly as they could. And then they left Paul alone in Athens. Maybe the top of my message today could be alone in Athens. Um, But today that's what we're going to look at. We're going to see Paul as he is alone in the city of Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy to come and join him. Let's have a word of prayer. Uh, This morning as we get started. Father, thank you for the time that we've had already in worship, uh, in in, in really powerful uh, media presentations as to uh, how we can be encouraged in our faith and encouraged in you. And uh, Lord, now as we come to this most important time of being in the Word together, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, I'm so thankful for this group of people that's here this morning that would get up early and come and be a part uh, of this morning service and I pray that you would speak to us in a special and a unique way today as we hear from you. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, it probably would have been a bit odd for Paul, don't you think, to be in a city all by himself? Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of like that feeling. I like sometimes to be alone. Occasionally, I will go and eat dinner by myself in a restaurant. Uh, and it's not because I'm, you know, sometimes you see people in a restaurant and you're like, oh, that poor person. I like it. I don't mind, you know. I have no kids. I have no, uh, I don't have to talk to my wife. No, no that's not it. But, uh, you know, I don't have uh, distractions. Usually I'll go and I'll just read or I'll even study. Sometimes I'll go and have lunch by myself as I study for a message or whatever. And, uh, but, but not everybody's like that. And Paul doesn't strike me as the kind of guy. He always had somebody with him, right? He always had people around him. He had companions traveling with him. But now we see him here in Athens uh, and, and I believe, I honestly believe that the believers in Berea and Thessalonica, I think that they were hoping, okay, Paul's going to rest a little bit. You know, we're going to send him to Athens, this beautiful city. I hope that he just, man, I hope he takes a long nap. I hope that he rests. I hope that he just enjoys the scenery. And, man, he's been beaten. He's been stoned. Uh, he's been put in the stocks. He's been through a rough couple of months. I hope that he will relax. And maybe the believers as they left him say, Paul, here's, you know, they provided for him. Here's enough money. We want you to relax, recharge, uh, and get ready to continue to minister. But we want you to take a break. But Paul is not the kind of guy to sit idly by. He's not the kind of person to just kill time. (laughs) He's not the kind of guy who just sits around. And so what we see in this passage is maybe a sightseeing trip being turned into a soul-winning trip for the Apostle Paul here in Acts chapter number 17. He is moved by the Spirit, as we will see, to share his faith. Now, at the very outset, to understand the implications of what is taking place here. Now, every city that he went to, you have to remember, every city that they went to on these missionary journeys was groundbreaking. It was maybe the first time the gospel had ever gone to that city. And Athens, this more than likely was the first time that the gospel came to these, uh, to these people. And so for us to really understand what's going on, I want us to put ourselves in Paul's sandals a little bit this morning as we get started, okay? So strap those sandals on and uh, get ready because we're going to try to understand a little bit what it would have been like to be alone in the influential center of thought university city called Athens. It was a part of the Roman Empire, but because Rome respected that Greek culture so much and they respected what they had accomplished there in Athens, it, it was part of Rome, but they actually never made it part of the, uh, of the empire in itself. They were under Roman occupation, or at least there was a, a bit of that. But overall, they left Athens to itself because they respected so much what took place there. And so we're going to follow Paul. We're going to be there with him. We're going to try to see what he sees and feel what he feels as we try to understand what took place in his heart that led to such a powerful demonstration uh, for the gospel further on down in the passage. Now, for many people, they see this passage of Acts chapter 17 as sort of a centerpiece for the book of Acts. And I'll just tell you something right now. For me personally, this passage right here, in fact, the verses that we're going to cover today is a verse that God used in my heart tremendously in planting City Baptist Church. God used it for, I mean, this is a very familiar and a very close to my heart passage right here because of what it means. But many people call it a centerpiece because it's where we see Paul for who he truly is. And the reason I say that is because we see Paul alone for the first time. You know, they say if you really wanna know who somebody is, right, you need to observe them when they're alone, (laughs) Now, that's hard for us to do, right? It's hard because then they wouldn't be alone anymore. Uh, John Wooden, who was a great coach, he coached UCLA for many years. He coached many famous uh, basketball players. Uh, He has a lot of great quotes, but one of the ones that has always stood with me, he said, character is who you are when no one is watching. Character is who you are when no one is watching. He's also known for saying, don't complain, don't whine, and don't make excuses. And I like that, that's a good one too, right? But he says here, don't, uh, or their character reveals who you are when no one is watching. And that's what we're seeing here in the life of Paul is that no one is there, no one is watching, he's all alone, and yet it reveals to us his character, who he truly is as we get to see this. And so point number one this morning in the message, I want us to look at what Paul saw. I just want to look at what Paul saw. When he got to Athens there and he's all alone, he's in this city, this amazing city with amazing culture and background and history, what did Paul see? Now at this point we believe it was around A.D. 51 that Paul made his way to Athens. At this point in the history of the city, you have to understand it was in what was called uh, they, they called it this the late afternoon of her glory, <laughs> meaning the city had gone through a bit of a downward turn as far as population influence, yet it still maintained uh, the uh, it, it still maintained the intellectual and cultural um, I guess you could say it would be the center the intellectual culture intellectual and Cultural center uh, of the empire at that time. Its heyday had been back, way back, hundreds of years before. At this point, Corinth, which is a city we'll get to eventually, but Corinth was now the uh, financial center, political center. It was a place where a lot of trade and uh, commerce was taking place. But Athens, though it was smaller in population, they only believe it about 10,000 people at this point, even though it was not what it had once been, like I mentioned earlier. It was still an amazingly beautiful city. It was most known for a place called the Acropolis. And on the Acropolis, which was an out, uh, uh, sort of a mountaintop, as you can see, still there today, uh, there in the city was, of course, what we know today as the Parthenon. And that's what they called it then. It was very famous. Now, today, of course, those are the ruins of it. But it was known for its beauty. You can see uh, down below here, uh, uh, there's a there's a there's another marketplace that was excavated right there. But up at the very top, for all of these centuries, this has still remained a part of this city's uh, history. And up there was the Parthenon, and in the Parthenon uh, was a statue to their favorite god, the goddess Athena. And I've got a picture of what she would have been like. The goddess Athena, made out of ivory and gold, some 38 feet tall, and uh, she would have been in the center there. Uh, uh, you can kind of see they have some uh, normal sized people there on the right as sort of a, a option for scale. Um, but it was an amazing, beautiful city. I mean, imagine this covered in gold and just I mean just shining in the sun. just it would have been an amazing, beautiful place uh, to experience. In most ancient Greek cities, they would put a, a temple and their main idol at the highest part uh, of the city. and it would have been an incredible thing to see. but we have to understand about Athens. This was not the only idol uh, in the city. This was not the only statue that was in the city. It's been said about Athens that it's easier to find a God than it is to find a man. That's literally what they would say about the city. Remember I told you there's about 10,000 people, right, in, uh, in the city at this time? They estimate there to be 30,000 idols, 30,000 gods in the city at this point. And they would be everywhere, in every nook and cranny, in every home. The streets would be lined with just these Greek statues, which of course were, I mean, amazing uh, works of art, but they all represented man-made idols. They represented pe- uh, um, uh, um, an ideology, of course, of uh, of idols which is so interesting because at the same time this city was known for its intellectualism it was known as it was where the universities were remember for hundreds of years it was this city where art and literature uh religion philosophy I mean was so well known that's what made it famous after all this is home of this is the home of Socrates if you you think back to your high school uh history you know Socrates what came from there Plato Aristotle uh Epicurus Hippocrates, of course, the father of Western medicine, many of the fathers of of some of the modern things that we have today were founded there in Athens. And, uh, uh, and, And overall, Athens for us, I want you to understand, when Paul went there, he would have understood that Athens was an illustration of sort of the highest heights of achievement that the human race can ascend to. And so for him, it, it, I'm sure he heard about the city as a boy. I'm sure that he had known all about it. And now here he was experiencing it, even though the Parthenon had been built at this part for almost 500 years it had been built when he got there to the city. This is, this is amazing to me. But I love traveling. Like we got to go to Europe uh, for our 10th anniversary. so five years ago. And that was the cool thing is you're here in Rome and you're looking at this and you're like, this thing is like 3,000 years old, you know? And in Canada, we're like, wow, look at this 100-year-old house, you know? <laughs> it's just, there's no scale here, you know? And if you've ever been able to go to some of these places, it's amazing. So this had already been around, think about it, 500 years by the time that Paul was there. And yet still, it was such a major aspect Uh, of this city. And so Paul here arrives, and knowing him, he went out, and as we see in the passage, he goes out and he begins to wander the streets. But as he wanders the streets, he does not respond like a normal tourist. I want to point that out. He does not respond like a normal tourist. He responds very differently. And the reason he responds differently is because Paul was different. And as Christians today, As saved believers in Jesus Christ, we are different and it changes the way that we look at the world. And so we come here to verse number 16 and we're going to see what Paul saw. It says, now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw. So his spirit was stirred when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Now, the word saw there in its Greek rendering is a uh, uh, which is where we get our word theater from. It's the idea of beholding something, of drinking something in. I mean, if you go to the theater to watch a movie, uh, you don't just be like you don't like poke your head in and walk out, right? You go in and you sit down, you popcorn and drink, and I mean you're there. You're 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 gonna take that whole thing in and you're like, I paid money to be here. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna stay till the very end of the credits in case there's an Easter egg at the very end, you know? And and you watch the whole thing through and you lock it in and and uh, and that's the idea here is that when he beheld the city. He saw it, he, he, he observed it, he paid attention to it, he pondered it. He was not struck by the beauty or the history. What he was struck with is that he saw a city completely given to idolatry. The word holy there is the idea of overrun, like completely overrun with idolatry. Now, to the average Roman citizen who would have gone there, they would have been amazed, right? Like, this is amazing what we see. But Paul, he saw it in a completely different light. Now, this brings us to an important point this morning. As Christians, when we look at the world, we do not see the world the same way that they see it. And the reason that we don't see it the way that we see it is because we should have something that we call a Christian worldview. A Christian worldview. And I want to talk about that for a moment. Now, a worldview, I want to define it real quickly. A worldview is a set of beliefs about the most fundamental issues in life Uh, origin of life, the meaning of life, morality, and destiny. If you just wanted to sort of put it concisely in a paragraph, this is how we would define what a worldview is. And a person's worldview allows you to answer questions about this subject in the grander scheme of things. Just by how your worldview is shaped. Now, when a person becomes a Christian, and this is what I wanted to get, when you become a Christian, your worldview changes. Completely. Completely your worldview changes. Why? Because within us and within the story of the Bible, what we begin to understand is that there is a set of beliefs about God, there's a set of beliefs about creation, there's a set of beliefs about humanity, there's a set of beliefs about sin, there's a set of beliefs about redemption, there's a set of beliefs about the kingdom, and those beliefs, along with the story of Scripture in its entirety, you always talk about the thread that runs throughout the Bible, those things combined give us and shape our view of the world, the way that we look at things. You know, we as Christians enjoy a lot of things that the world enjoys. I mean, that's obvious. We enjoy, uh, you know, the scenery, and we enjoy all of these aspects. We enjoy technology and whatever it is that, that the world does create, and we enjoy them, but we look at them very differently. You know, as Christians, we look at art very differently, right? You know, to the world, they may look at a piece of art and be like, wow, this artist is amazing, We need to talk about this person and we need to talk about the background and and where it came from and how this, you know, and those are all important aspects. But as a Christian, I often look at a piece of art and I think about, wow, imagine God created this and we're still trying to reproduce it, you know? We're still trying to capture it uh, on a canvas or whatever it may be. This is so beautiful. Stephanie uh, gave us one of her paintings, which is so, so beautiful. And I love that painting. It's in our house by our kitchen. And I often will stand there and look at that painting. And one of the questions I've had is, I wonder what it was like the day that you painted it, you know, or the day that you took the picture that you painted it off of. And so, and so, while it is a great representation, as a Christian, we also recognize the handiwork of God all around us. Not only do we look at art differently, but we look at uh, music differently. We look at sports differently. You say, "Well, this is getting close to home." We do. As Christians, you know, in the world, it's all about money and power and, you know, sports is about a way to dominate people or whatever. We look at it as, man, God created us. Like when I see somebody jump with a 46-inch vertical and me as a white guy, you know, my jumping ability is not quite where it needs to be. You know, I'm just like, wow, it's amazing that God can create someone and that they have the athletic ability to do these amazing things with their bodies. And and so we look at sports differently uh, as well. Of course, we know uh, we look at culture differently. We look at the different cultures from around the world differently. We look at it as we are all one blood in Christ. We're actually going to talk about that. Uh, um, That comes up in this passage. But we look at the poor differently, the orphan differently, the widow differently. We look at uh, um, uh, the animals around us differently. We view money differently. We look at marriage differently. We look at death differently as Christians. And it's because our worldview is shaped by something other than this world and by other humans. It's shaped by God and his word. We filter everything, and we should filter everything that we encounter through a right perspective of God's self-revelation to us in creation and in Scripture, ultimately through His Son. And, and, And this is what is called a Christian worldview. And we recognize that as believers, and I think you understand that, but we also have to recognize there is a competing worldview to that. Remember, whatever God creates, Satan tries to emulate, and so there is a worldly philosophy. There's a worldly uh, uh, worldview in our society today, and I got to tell you, it's mainly driven in our society right now. It hasn't always been this way, but right now, in in Paul's day, it was by the philosophers and the the even the religious people set the worldview for the tone, uh, for the society today. Very easily, we can see that it is media, right? It is, the, it is the content that we consume that sets our worldview. And so as Christians, we've got to be aware then of what content we are subscribing to, right? We have to be aware of what content we are uh, entertaining ourselves with because a worldly worldview or, a, or a, a secular worldview is going to be in conflict with a biblical worldview, the way that we perceive things. Uh, sometimes when I deal with Christians, And and oftentimes there's been a case in in just a conversation or a counseling or whatever it may be, uh, a a Christian maybe will have a very secular worldview about a situation or a very uh, uh, man-centric or humanistic approach uh, to a certain uh, position or a certain uh, mentality that is maybe very clear in Scripture as to how Christians should be. And, And one of the first questions that I always ask of that person whenever I'm in that discussion is, who is influencing you? That's my question. So where are you learning this? Uh, uh, what are you what what are you consuming? What kind of content are you uh, consuming? And 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 when you start to get into that, and if they're honest with you, you can very easily see the worldview then, and you can be like, okay, well that makes sense. Why they believe this way, it makes sense why they may have this worldview. Because what we consume makes a difference to us. And so that's why Paul here is such a great example to us because he was not influenced, he was not intimidated or even distracted by this amazing worldly city of Athens. And the reason was, is because whenever you have a Christian worldview, what happens is it changes the way you look at everything. And when it changes the way you look at everything, what it reveals is that this world is a world of idolatry. That's what it reveals to you. The Christian worldview will always show you the idols of this world. Now, today, obviously, we don't have thousands of idols lining the streets, right? We don't. We really don't. Um, But we do live in a city that has a worship problem. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. Idolatry is a worship problem. It is a misplacing of worship. And we live in a society today that has a worship problem. It's the worship of self. It's the worship of money. It's the worship of fame. It's the worship of lust. I mean, those are profound, and they are glaringly obvious to us who are Christians. But to those who are not believers, uh, they are like those that are in Athens, and their pursuit of knowledge uh, has misguided their source of worship. And what it leads to is a spiritual and a moral bankruptcy in the life of those people and within a city. I think you guys could agree with me today that to say that our society is bankrupt. I think you know what I mean. There's nothing to it. It's uh, sometimes, you, you know, have you ever met somebody who's bankrupt? I have. It's okay, you know. Have you ever met somebody? Okay, how do you know that they're bankrupt? They tell you, right? You don't often see it on the outside, especially today if the company is bankrupt. You don't know it until they close the doors, right? There's always a, there's always, it seems like something's going on, but inwardly, man, they are in trouble, right? And that's how it is in our society. We are, we look like we got it all figured out. Athens looked like a great, great city, but it's the shell of what they once were. And the reason is because they were morally and they were spiritually bankrupt, and Paul's response to all of this, this is what I notice He looks and he saw, and because of what he saw, it changed something within him. And so point number two, I want you to see what Paul felt. So we see what Paul saw. He saw this city given to idolatry. But I want you to notice what he felt and look back at verse number 16. It says, and while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. His spirit was Was stirred in him when he looked at this city and he saw and he recognized from the biblical worldview the fact that uh, something was not right here. He was stirred up, and he wasn't stirred up with his own needs. I want you to get that. Too many Christians today, many Christians today, are only stirred in their spirit when it comes to the their needs or when it comes to the things that they want to see happen. Then they'll get stirred up very quickly. But we see Paul get stirred in his spirit because of the condition of the city because of the worldliness the idolatry that was in this city now when it comes to this idea here of him being stirred in his spirit some people try to translate that as anger like man paul was ticked right like he was i mean he was just fuming you know smoke's coming out of his ears and he's just so angry and and man what's going to happen now he's so upset and by the way that can be an element of his feelings definitely of what was stirring within him the word the greek word is Uh, paroxino, which is actually very difficult to translate into an English expression. You do realize that there are some of the original languages that carry so much more meaning. You know, some some of you uh, who come from different countries and speak different languages, uh, you know, I've met people and they'll be like, oh, it's, uh," and they're trying to describe something to me and they'll say, oh, it's this word. But they're like, there's not really an English comparison. And I'm always like, English is the worst. You know? <laughs> like, like, you know, we don't have, we don't have, by the way, it goes both ways. And we recognize that in language, there's differences. And so this word right here, stirred, is actually hard to express in an English uh, term. And so to understand it, here's what I wanna do. I wanna go to the Old Testament. So we're gonna go to the Old Testament to help us understand what's happening here uh, in this word. And the, and the reason I wanna go to the Old Testament, because this idea of, of stirred parallels the way that God often is expressed or God is described in the Old Testament when his people, the Israelites, turn to idols. Now, I think you recognize that that happened actually quite a bit in the Old Testament. We notice the Israelites would get distracted or whatever, and they would turn back to idols. And so God then would be, the word is provoked. He uh, uh, He would be frustrated by his people. So in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7, I want to show you. This is one example. Now, this is speaking uh, to Israel, reminding them of their past. And he says, remember and forget not how thou provoked the Lord thy God to wrath in the wilderness. That is something the Israelites should have been reminded about every day. Remember what you did in the wilderness. Remember how you provoked the Lord to wrath. Well, what was that whole situation? It involved an idol, didn't it? And so they said, remember how the Lord was provoked, to anger, uh, in the wilderness, from the day that thou didst depart out of the land of Egypt until you come to this place, ye have been rebellious against the Lord. So when Israel turned away from God and turned to idols, they provoked Him to a righteous anger. Now. Oftentimes, what is so interesting is people look at the Old Testament, they're like, God was so angry in the Old Testament. Like, did he go to therapy between the, you know, the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament to get things all worked out? No, here's what you need to understand. Anywhere in the Old Testament where we see righteous anger, right? God is holy. God is perfect. So it is a righteous anger. It is, it is pure and perfect in his anger towards sin. We always see paired with it love. God's love. Always. How do we know that? Well, let me ask you. How many times did God forgive and restore Israel? Every time. Every time God restored himself to Israel. What do you think the cross means to mankind today? It is God's restoration. It is God's olive branch. It is God's hand to mankind who has rejected him and rebelled against him. And that is the perfect picture of God's love. Do we deserve his righteous anger? Yes. We have rebelled and we have sinned against God and we deserve that. But at the same time, we always see paired with his righteous anger towards us. And sometimes judgment, we see his love and his restoration right there for us as well. And for Paul, it's kind of like the Old Testament prophets who always portrayed that mixture of righteous indignation with a brokenheartedness for their people. You see that all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets would be like, so like, God is going to judge you, you know? You need to turn to him. That's an expression of love, not it's too late, it's over, you're done. Now, I mean, that was the whole the issue with Jonah, right? He was showing the righteousness of God or the anger of God, uh, but there was no love and there was no joy there. So God superseded that, thankfully, and God came in and rescued Nineveh uh, as they returned and repented to him. Um, but this is sort of what we see with Paul here, he was righteously angered. And there was indignation about the idolatry, but at the same time there was a compassion for them. In other words, he was motivated for love by love for the city, just like Jesus taught in Matthew chapter twenty-two. Remember, Jesus said, "Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind." This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it: "Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself." On these two commandments hang the law. Uh, and all the prophets. Now that's a really, really great thing. You imagine a hook hanging there. Love for God and love for your neighbor, and everything else falls off of that. And that's what he's trying to illustrate to us here: is that he's looking at this city for what it was. It was in bondage to sin. He was looking at this city, uh, and remember, he had grown up in the Roman culture, so it's not like it's not like he would just be like, ah, you know, this is the way it is. He he had grown up in it, so he understood this culture. It was not a surprise to him, but now that his spiritual eyes were opened, as he walked the streets that were lined with thousands of carved man made idols, he was given a passion and he was given an insight. And the insight that he had is that none of these idols could do anything for the condition of the people there. Not one of them could offer peace, not one of them could offer forgiveness that Jesus could bring into somebody's life. Just like today, there is no idol that someone may worship of self, of money, of fame, whatever. It will never give you, it will never give anyone peace and harmony and joy, no matter how much you pursue and no matter how much you worship and no matter how much you throw down yourself at that idol, you will never experience that. Now, when I read this verse here and I see how his heart was stirred, listen, my heart is convicted. And I hope that yours is too. That it's convicted because the hard reality for most of us is that we look at our city and we do not see them as the, in the same way that God sees them. We do not see them in the same way that Paul sees them. For many of us, we look at our city and our society and we say, well, that's just what it is. It's a sinking ship, right? (laughs) It's a sinking ship. Uh, I heard somebody say this week, they're like, the decision is up to us. Are we just going to rearrange the chairs on the sinking ship or are we going to pull people on board? (laughs) Or are we going to try to, you know, or try to get off basically was what it was. And I totally messed that quote up. So I will not use that in the second service, all right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's what happens when you try to remember things you didn't write down. But, but we should be under conviction because we don't see them in the same way. And I think part of it is because we as Christians have become so, uh, so accustomed to the sin and the emptiness that surrounds us that we no longer look at it with spiritual eyes. And literally some Christians have the attitude, it's like, well, it's, it's too late. What it, this is what it is. We can't have that attitude, church. We can't. You got to think, Paul, under Roman occupation, I mean, Rome was a frightful <laughs> enemy and an empire. I mean, the things that they accomplished and how swiftly they moved across the known world, I mean, would have been fearful. For many of the Christians, they believed this was the end times that Jesus was talking about. So for Paul to be in Athens, the center of idolatry, he could have said, man, they're too far gone. But he didn't because his heart was stirred within him. Listen, if you are living your life primarily unaffected by the lost condition of your friends and your family and your coworkers, you need to reevaluate your biblical worldview. <laughs> Let me say it this way. You need to reevaluate your worldview to see if it's biblical. <laughs> if you're largely unaffected by them, in the book of Lamentations where Jeremiah wrote and he spoke about the, destru- uh, the destruction of Israel, interestingly enough, he wrote about the destruction of Israel based off of the prophecies that he had made. So he made the prophecies, and he was watching them be fulfilled, and he wrote the book of Lamentations. This is what he said. He said, my eye has affected my heart. He said that in the context of uh, of Israel being destroyed and him seeing it. He saw the destruction of the people that he loved. He saw the destruction of his people, and it affected his heart in such a way. It talks about other portions in the passage that it brought uh, uh, It brought tears and sorrow. In other words, it affected him very, very deeply because he saw people suffering the consequences of, the sin, as, of their sin. And as believers today, we uh, who are the salt and the light of this world, our hearts should ache. Our eyes should fill with tears when we look at the people around us who live in ignorance of the Creator. Those that have been blinded by the God of this world and the idols of this world. I wonder sometimes if it was Athens that Paul was thinking about when he wrote to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, where he says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. You know, the God of this world, Satan, is doing all that he can to blind the eyes of our society, and he is succeeding at it at a far greater pace than we would maybe have ever expected. And I got to tell you, not only within our world with the lost, but he's also succeeding in the Christian world as well. As many, many Christians are deceived by the God of this world, they think and they believe that they are maybe doing the will of God, they think and they believe maybe that they are uh, holding a right position or they are defending certain things, but in fact, they are being deceived by the God of this world, and their worldview is shifting from a godly Bible-based worldview to a secular worldview, and they must be aware of it. Why is Satan succeeding? i got to ask that question. Why is it? I just read an article this week that in in Canada, in the next 10 years, they're expecting uh, expecting 9,000 churches will close in the next decade. 9,000 churches in our country will close in the next decade. Uh, By the way, far less will be planted or revitalized. Those are buildings, not just other, you know, there's a lot of churches that are rented facilities like us. Now, over 9,000, they estimate buildings will be closed in the next decade. I wonder why that is. Is it because of our own... Busy pursuit of making our living, or living for ourselves—that is our excuse. Is it our fear of man? Uh, is it that we have become cold and apathetic towards the lost around us? And because we're apathetic, we then have uh, been become and are complicit in our disobedience to God. We're not following what He taught us in, in the Book of Mark, where He said, "Go all the world and preach the gospel to every creature." Listen, when we consider the seriousness of it of of this, when we consider the effect that it had on the Apostle Paul. Oftentimes when I look at my own life, I am grieved in my own soul, grieved in my own soul because of my lack of love for God and for those who need him. You say, Well, you're the pastor. That's that's kind of disturbing to hear. It's true though. It's true. Does your is your soul grieve because of your lack of love for others? That's why it's so imperative that we look at this world with a spiritual insight. Because spiritual insight will always lead us to make the same decision that we see Paul making here as he allowed what he saw to affect his heart. You know, Paul could have remained indifferent, couldn't he? He could have remained uh, detached. He could have been like, well, come on, you know, Silas and, and Timothy, when they get here, then we'll do something about it. But not Paul, because that, what he saw affected his heart, and that then developed passion within him. I think about Jeremiah in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 20, verse 9, where he said, His word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing." He says, I was weary waiting around. I could not stay. I had a fire. I had the gospel within me. I needed to go out, and I needed to do something. And Paul here was moved in his spirit. He could not sit idly by any longer. And when you come back next week, we'll talk about what happened because I want to end the message right here today. Because I believe what we have talked about is a great place for us to stop and to consider in our own hearts the message of verse number 16. You say, we're only covering one verse today? (laughs) Yup. I I think maybe it's the first time in the history of our church that I've only preached on one verse, but there's so much here that I believe is so important for us. I gotta ask you, what do you see and what do you feel when you look at our city today? What do you see and what do you feel when you look at our city today? Does it affect you in any way at all? In your heart, are you bothered at all uh, by the fact that millions of people are being deceived? Does it stir your soul to know that as a Christian, you have the answer to what our world is pursuing? My message, or my goal for the message today is simply for us to take a look at our own hearts and to evaluate how we look at this world. You know, as Christians, we realize that this world is not our home, right? We love that old song, this world is not uh, my home, I'm just uh, passing through, you know? And, uh, and we're moving on to a heavenly place, and we, and we recognize that. But we also have to remember that we are here for the time that God desires for us to be here. And what we do know this is that God has placed you in this city right now for a reason. God has placed you in the workplace that you're at right now for a reason. God has given you the family that you have, the, 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 the circle of influence that you have right now for a reason. And the only way for you to truly fulfill your purpose is if your heart is stirred, stirred by what you see. If your heart is stirred by what you see. If it's not, if you are indifferent, if you are uninfluenced, perhaps your heart is cold this morning. Perhaps your heart is, I don't know, shriveled up <laughs> like, the, uh, <laughs> like the Grinch, <laughs> the tiny little heart right now. Here's the good news, is that it doesn't take much to restore that passion for other people. It doesn't take much to restore a love and a kindness for others. Maybe right now you're just frustrated with everybody. Right now you're just frustrated with the whole world and you're just like, what is wrong with everyone? (laughs) Listen, a few minutes alone with the Lord, a few minutes alone confessing your hard heart to God, that's one of the things I pray almost every single day. Lord, forgive me of my hard heart create me give me a heart of flesh remove that heart of stone now, that's in a picture of course of salvation but it's also a picture of how we approach this world give us a heart of flesh give us a heart that is sensitive a heart that sees and then is stirred and that stirring of your heart will lead you to action which we're going to cover next week and I'm excited about that message already we hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God to stay connected with us Give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Vance City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue his will for your life.